the architecture of the institutions is frequently, not always, but in, in the things that most vex our society, uh, misaligned. On many other things, it's fine. If you want to issue more parking tickets or you know more licenses and so on, some of those processes work quite well with fragmented linear organizations that are hierarchical. Yeah. But for the things that are most pressing to society and will become increasingly more important, there is an organizational structure that's fundamentally misaligned. So there, there needs to be a change in that. Um, and that's part legacy because those mm -hmm. logics have worked so well in the past, it's hard to recognize that what worked so well in the past may not help us in the future. And it requires real leadership to begin to transform these things. And then the question is, can institutions transform themselves? And mm -hmm. I think fundamentally they can't because to transform themselves, they will transform based on logics that they think are acceptable. And hence, by nature, those logics that will most likely keep them locked in to current approaches mm -hmm. rather than fundamentally transform them. Hi, everyone. I'm Fabio, the host of the Shaping Chaos podcast. And today I have Marco Steinberg with me. Marco is the founder of Snowcone and Haystack, a company that helps leaders to innovate by solving the complex challenges that are faced by our governments, societies, and the environment. Marco is the former uh, direct director of strategic design at the Finnish Innovation Fund. And he helped and worked with uh, governments from the Northern Ireland, Canada, Finland, and Slovenia. Marco, is this a good intro to what you do? It's a great intro, and thank you, Fabio, for having me uh, in, in this conversation. Thank you. And um, the first time I heard about your work was in my conversation with, with Indy Johar. Uh, I asked him uh, if there's anyone that is uh, particularly interesting at uh, shaping chaos and um, solving complex problems. and it, in a split second, he said your name. And to be honest with you, I wasn't aware of your name uh, before he mentioned it. But I'm as soon as I did uh, more research on you, I, I knew that I wanted to bring you to the conversation, to, to the Shaping Chaos podcast, and to ask you the single question I ask every single guest. And that question is, if you ever have been in a particular chaotic situation while helping uh, leaders to innovate, and if you did, what do you think led to that chaotic situation? And how did you manage that? So um, that's a very good question because I think it, it gets at the core of um, sort of our current challenges. If we look at COVID, we it's certainly a very chaotic situation across mm -hmm. the world. And um, I think we begin to realize that the view we had on the world and the way in which we act upon it, that some of those logics are beginning to show their sort of limits. We're seeing mm -hmm. the limits of government's ability and of society as a whole to respond in an effective way um, on, on these kinds of disruptions. So, uh, you know, it, it is very central to the work I do. It's hard to go into any specific example mm -hmm. for two reasons. One is because then we, in a way, get into very kind of uh, uh, organization-specific conversations, yeah. and there's there's a, a, a clearly a sensitivity around that. But I think actually the more important reason for the purpose of our conversation is that I would say actually all the work I do is, deals with chaotic situations. <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm an architect by training. I don't think anybody in their right mind would call an architect or a designer to help them with questions of public governance. Okay. Things weren't chaotic. Mm -hmm. So it's always a signal that, okay, somebody's realized we need a different, uh, you know, perspective uh, mm -hmm. to it. So, so, so there's a lot of it. And I think just to very kind of maybe land this very in a simple way would be to say that it's generally chaotic because the logic of the organization is not aligned with the question they're trying to answer. Ooh, interesting. So the question is the problem here. Uh, yeah, it's 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 both what the world demands, like what's the logic of how the world works, mm -hmm. um, and that is frequently contrary to how organizations work. Uh, organizations okay. have looked at what's efficient for them, but not necessarily what works for the world. Um, and my work is mostly with uh, you know the public sector and and questions of public governance. Mm -hmm. 
But these are organizations that work in a very siloed or compartmentalized way. You know, they have departments uh, and and they work in very linear ways, right? They like to plan and get all the facts. And then they assume that if you get all the facts, then you'll know what to do. And they're very hierarchical. So then you take that logic of organization and suddenly it has to deal with questions that are very complex, interdependent, ambiguous, and fast moving. And you realize you have a fundamental mismatch between the organizational tool, the logic of the organization, and the question that it needs to respond to. Mm-hmm. So for me, when people talk about smaller government, for example, yeah. that's the wrong framing around organizations in the public sector. We don't need a smaller screwdriver. We need a different tool to deal with the logic of the world. And so that generally creates chaos. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because in your uh, website, there's a question that I was really interested to ask you. Um, So you said in your website something like, um, what questions, uh, what are the right questions to ask? And I asked you like, what are the right questions to ask when you face such such complexity? Yeah. So, you know, there, there, there's many dimensions to this. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. tell a story that I o- always tell. So, you know, if okay. somebody's listening to this, they'll go like, oh my God, I've heard that so many times. <laughs> but but I, I use it because I think it captures in a very simple way this question of framing. Okay. Um, so in the 1950s, there was a small town in Denmark. Um, and there was a public swimming facility, a building with a swimming pool that mm-hmm. was run by the city. And the city council, the leadership realized that in the past year, people had basically stopped going to the swimming facility. And so as concerned leaders, they said, what's, you know, what's, what's going on? And so they decided to go visit the facility and see firsthand, because they were very dedicated for improving the, uh, the, the municipality, what was wrong with the building. And they found a building that was in terrible condition. You know, the windows were broken, it was leaking, and it was clear to all leaders that the problem was in the building and that to solve it, this question of public attendance, we needed a new building. So they hired an architect and the architect came back two weeks later to the city council meeting and everyone was waiting for the first schematic uh, concept of the new swimming facility that would Mm -hmm. in a way solve this problem. And the architect said, you're absolutely right. Um, The building is in deplorable conditions. But it is not the reason why people stopped coming to your swimming facility. The reason people stopped coming to this facility is because you changed the public bus schedule last year (laughs) not to coincide with open hours. So people can't get there, right? So too frequently organizations, because they are focused on improving current logics, they are very close to the current issue and they don't have the capacity to take several steps back and understand what is the architecture of issues that is affecting the symptom they're seeing. And that doesn't give them the perspective to realize that to solve what they're seeing, they need to act somewhere completely differently. Mm -hmm. And so frequently to use this analogy, we keep building new swimming facilities and wonder why things don't get better. Well, it's because we're not getting at the core or root cause Mm-hmm. of the issues that we need to respond to. Um, and that adds to the chaos then. Yeah. We start talking about misuse of public funds, the government doesn't know what it's doing, and yet everyone is working in a very well-intentioned manner. No one is trying to deliberately do anything mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. It's just that the institutions and work is organized in a way that doesn't allow the department of facilities that is trying to do the best with the facilities to see the interconnected nature of what they're dealing with, with public transportation, with issues of work, with climate, and so on and so on. And you have that constellation. So that's where I work in, is trying to get leaders to understand a bigger, more strategic set of issues and help reframe what it is that they're trying to respond to. Interesting. Is this, is this, um, it seems that, is this a lack of perspective or it's a lack of skills uh, when when it comes to um, agencies or governments to select the teams that work in these big problems? Yeah. Is it, is it skills? Is it? What, I'm I'm curious. I I think it's a, it's a combination of two things. Uh, one, as I've outlined, it is the r- wrong institutional logics at play. Hmm. 
fundamentally, the architecture of the institutions is frequently, not always, but in, 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 in the things that most vex our society, uh, misaligned. On many other things, it's fine. If you want to issue more parking tickets or, you know, more licenses and so on, some of those processes work quite well with fragmented linear organizations that are hierarchical. But for the things that are most pressing to society and will become increasingly more important, there is an organizational structure that's fundamentally misaligned. So there there needs to be a change in that. Um, And that's part legacy because those Mm -hmm. logics have worked so well in the past it's hard to recognize that what worked so well in the past may not help us in the future. And it requires real leadership to begin to transform these things. And then the question is, can institutions transform themselves? And mm-hmm. I think fundamentally they can't. Mm-hmm. Because to transform themselves, they will transform based on logics that they think are acceptable. And hence, by nature, those are logics that will most likely keep them locked in to current approaches rather than fundamentally transform them because they're institutionally acceptable. They fall within the logic of the institution. But the other bit of this equation, so one is the architecture of these institutions. Mm -hmm. The other one is uh, the discipline of this kind of work. So I, I would push your question further. Okay. Not just about skills. It's about the discipline. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of talk in, in sort of innovation, especially in public governance, about skills and toolkits um, as if we can sort of paste on <laughs> to organizations and cultures these things and it will work. Right? Yeah. I always get this question, what's the toolkit to do this thing? I'm like, you never asked that from a doctor. You yeah. know, give me the stethoscope and, and give me the scalpel and, and, and I'll become a doctor. No, mm-hmm. in addition to those, you need a lot of experience. Very importantly, lived experience, not theoretical experience, not paper th- uh, experience. Mm-hmm. That's valid and important in other, in other domains. Uh, but if you want to practice, you need lived experience. Have you ever been in a, a, an initiative that is trying to transform the logical organization, dealing with issues that are very fluid. And by virtue, that nexus is very chaotic. Right? Mm-hmm. But we don't, we don't have the discipline. So we don't have the institutions and we don't have the discipline. So then you have to ask yourself, where would those disciplines most quickly, most readily come from? And I think there needs to be a connection to design because in my perspective, and we can talk about what design yeah. is without complicating things too much, <laughs> design is, is, it has a, a couple fundamental elements. One of them, it is that it is a process of synthesis, taking many inputs and creating new options, not mm-hmm. optimizing, not choosing between existing options. And, and more and more in the world, if you want to deal in chaotic issues, the options aren't available. You need to create them to change the dynamics. So it's well suited for that, but it's a long way to take designers and just plonk them into these, yeah. th- this kind of world. We need to find ways to bridge them very, very mm-hmm. quickly. And then the other end of the spectrum is, can we upskill people who don't have design backgrounds, but have in a way relevant capacities to begin to build this discipline? What's the mm-hmm. science and what's the practice of doing this kind of work. That's missing. That's a big vacuum right now. Yeah. That's just made me think like, is it, is it this kind of problem? Do, do these uh, kind of problems uh, require things to start from scratch or, or is it possible to actually disrupt or change uh, uh, this big chaotic enterprises from within? Yeah. That, that is the fundamental question. I think that's uh-huh. the, you know, if we just take the European perspective, mm-hmm. is, you know, the, it gets harder and harder to generalize and the bigger the <laughs> scale you get to. But I do think these are br- broadly uh, sort of global issues around sort of public governance. Um, but yeah, that's the challenge in, 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 in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we transform our institutions that have served us so well? And yet now with COVID and with Things prior to COVID, we we're beginning to really see the limits of these yeah, institutions. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think you can start from scratch because we need these institutions right now. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, you, we can't take an approach that, um, you know what, we're going to just shut down the school system <laughs> while we make space for this, the design of this completely new, radically better school system. No, we need to have an approach where we drive the car and change the tire at the same time. And that's what makes this sort of complicated. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so that's kind of like my building element number one. 
My, my second building element here would be to say, well, how do you do that? <laughs> and let me spend just a moment, uh, forgive me, but just a moment to try to explain how I see uh, organizational change. Because ultimately, mm-hmm. we want a different kind of outcome. And, and then there is, in a way, a process that leads to a different kind of outcome. And in order to enable a different kind of process, you need a different kind of organizational logic. So you, you kind of backtrack. In my, in, in my example, in a certain way, people used to be interested in the shiny object the designer would make. Yeah. And then interested, oh, how do you make that object? Mm-hmm. And then, oh, how do I build the capacity to, to make that do the process that allows mm-hmm. me to do that? So mm-hmm. now we're getting at the really deep core kind of issue now. Uh, I'm going to oversimplify this. Yeah, uh, There is a school of thought, or let's just say practice, because this is what we've seen for decades. And, and I, without offending anybody, I'll use the word change management. Okay. Where you analyze an organization, and then you, based on that analysis, say, well, you know what? We need to change the shape of this organization. And so we're going to reorganize it. So I'm going to be a bit silly here, but we're, <laughs> we're going to go from six boxes to five boxes in a pyramid. You know, that's our mm-hmm. shift. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Um, and then, but I think that's a very difficult proposition. I don't think that effectively changes because what it does is it creates a big change with a little, uh, lots of pain, because you're literally like potentially firing people or, or, or kind of moving them and really mm-hmm. disrupting the organization all based on the promise that this new diagram will be much, much better. Trust us, trust us. Yeah. <laughs> right? So then it creates a lot of noise that dilutes the clarity of what you're trying to do and ultimately frequently delivers a very mediocre outcome with a lot of pain, which ends up being almost a worse solution than what you started with. I mean, this is kind of like an extreme scenario. So I'd rather flip it around. So I think a lot of this kind of work happens in teams. And in small, highly integrated cross-disciplinary teams that have the ability to take many different kinds of inputs, bring different social perspectives together, and begin to figure out how do we begin to tackle this issue or that issue. Right? Mm-hmm. So start by doing. Instill a different kind of behavior in your institution or organization. Give it freedom. I hate to use the COVID example, but it's kind of like create a little virus and give it freedom. Right? Mm-hmm. And if it succeeds, Right, And if you do it smartly, those six, seven, eight people who are on that team will have hopefully a very positive experience, an experience that is more deeply connected to the mission of the institution that has been able to deliver on the institution in a, in a more effective way. Right? So if your public institution does health services, this, this team can deliver something better, it'll create good experience in terms of delivery, but for the team too. And now you have six, seven, eight spokespeople for a different way of doing it. And you start moving them around. And they create not just one initiative, but they create eight separate initiatives with 64 people, right? Yeah. So uh, you build on the small pockets of excellence in the organization systematically until you create pressure for the whole organization to say, hey, I want some of that too. Hey, Mm -hmm. we want more of that. And then you follow with your organizational change. Right, Because then you don't have to say, well, hold on, this will deliver great stuff. People can already see what that logic delivers. Right. Yeah. So, so as approach to saying, we're going to lead with disruption and hope for good, you start with good, build on good, and end with change. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the push and pull forces, right? Because um, I've read uh, somewhere that the way that you picked projects when you were at Citra was, was about pulling and pushing. It's trying to understand... Uh, if we are pushing innovation, like just showing people that this is the way, or we've, we're pulling. So we create uh, enough um, um, pull uh, that makes people want, attract, attracts people to the problem and exactly. makes them excited to, to, finish, to, yeah. to work on it. And I think that's a very basic but extraordinarily important principle mm-hmm. because we have to recognize, you know, I'm happy to like debate this point, <laughs> but I, I think we have to. Uh, agree on the fact that the current mainstream logic of how we operate in society is really, you know, it's it's got tons of inertia, mm-hmm. right? So the idea that we can go in there and stop that inertia mm-hmm. is, whew, 
very difficult. <laughs> and the more chaotic things get, like with COVID mm-hmm. in Finland and Europe, for most places, we're having a second wave. What are we starting to see? Is that that political unity around a clear response to, to COVID is starting to become more diffuse. There's more infighting. There's more anxiety and so on. So, you know, the more disruption this inertia is confronted with, uh, the more chaotic potentially the situation gets. So I, you need to do, you need to look at what are the, what's good that's happening right now yeah. and actually do exactly as you said, try to attract people rather than stop people. Mm-hmm. It seems to me like using the, the COVID example that this is just a, a huge lack of focus and a huge lack of um, direction um, to, to say the least. But one of the things that I find interesting about your approach is that how careful you are in terms of um, using the word design. Um, because it seems that people forget about design when they're thinking about these problems. They think this is a problem about infrastructure, or they think this is a problem about economic resources. Um, so why, why, do you, why are you so careful about the word design? Because I found that interesting. Like you mean careful that I I, I don't use it much. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, so you know, as I said, I'm I'm an architect by training, mm-hmm. and so broadly, some people would disagree, but broadly, I consider myself a designer, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm very passionate, and I'm passionate about sort of our discipline um, and all of that. Um, but for the most part, if I go in a context. Uh, of say public governance mm-hmm. right where citizens and the state and the city and so on we're trying to figure out how to create public good and all of that and i start talking about design like hands down it's going to be a disruption to what it is that we're trying to do the first thing that i get well what do you mean by design why is design <laughs> you know so then i'm spending all this time trying to explain design and i realize like i'm wasting my time i'm wasting their time we have issues deep-seated social issues that we need to resolve and we start the conversation by by highlighting our disciplinary perspective it doesn't you know so we're just people mm-hmm. what's the issue that you need to do deal with and let's start unpacking it, right? And then after a while, we get to the question of design. So, you know, people will say, oh, well, it's a very ambiguous kind of question. You know, it's highly complicated. Um, actually, you know, the data that we have alone will never resolve this. We need to understand people's behavior because with like, you know, say the masks, mm-hmm. the question of masks or no mask, we're realizing that many of these issues have a huge behavioral component on it. And yeah. yet there's a very clinical and scientific aspect of it. And yet there is a, a geographic issue. So we have many domains of knowledge and we don't know how to bring them together. And, and we need to actually intervene. We need to intervene in this world, not just like adjust existing solutions because we need to create new kinds of solutions. So we're kind of at a loss. And, and you know, so we unpack that. And, and at some point, then we come to the point where I said, you know what you're describing, actually, you would be well served by having design, <laughs> right? But we don't lead the conversation with design because it becomes mm-hmm. a distraction. We lead and frame the conversation in terms of what it is that we're trying to, you know, respond to. What's the question on the table? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then it becomes much clearer also what design is because it's emerged out of the, the challenge. And hence, it's also a relevant term at that point. Yeah. But again, it's a little bit like my organizational uh, <laughs> transformation logic. If you lead with the term um, and, and then hope for a promise, the promise that design will be relevant, you're going to be get caught in, the, in, yeah. in, in a bunch of uh, noise. I also think, by the way, that our, from, as much as I love our sort of broader discipline, that we are really undisciplined with the use mm-hmm. of design as a term. Mm-hmm. Um, so it creates huge confusion in sort of non-design communities. Definitely. I think that's one of the main things I'll take from this conversation is that <laughs> it, it, it actually is like, usually when I talk about design, people are like, oh, it's just making this beautiful, right? And it's not. It's just trying to understand the problem. What is the problem that we're figuring out? And in, in most organizations, one of the things that raises to the top, it's, it's something that is, is the elephant in the room in most of conversation, which is uh, greed and economic incentives, right? Um, I wonder if, if that plays in governance as well. 
Um, I, I mean, you know, I think yes. And, mm-hmm. and we don't need to look at it as a kind of negative thing, although okay. there are certainly negative traits to it. And so I would agree with you. And we see that, whether it's corruption or, you know, whatever the, those those symptoms might be. But, you know, I think in a more neutral way, we could just say incentives. People mm-hmm. are driven by certain kinds of things. And, and so I think what's important to recognize that when we're dealing with organizations, that there's a difference between how organizations behave and how individuals behave. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there, there are scales, there are other things that sort of play. And, and this can be a difficult thing for people to recognize. Well, you know, if 100 people who are well-intentioned mm-hmm are in a room, then the outcome of that room must be well-intentioned, right? Because it's the sum of 100 well-intentioned. No, actually, the outcome can be like complete disaster. In fact, you know, people will have stampedes if they're in panic. Mm -hmm. So even their fundamental behavior will be contrary as a group dynamic is different than that of individuals. So I think we need to, in a way, keep that in mind, but I'll I'll push that aside as Mm -hmm. having said that and say incentives. So at an organizational level, the incentives, let's say, in the public sector for a ministry or department is that because they are budget-based, so every year, for the most part, they need to have their budgets approved, Mm -hmm. uh, their ability to negotiate the next year's budget is based on what budget they have today and actually how much of it they use. So it creates an incentive for overspending and protecting your budget because that will give you more leverage next year in saying, you know what? You see, we went 10% over. That's because you guys didn't give us enough money because you gave us all these new tasks to do. So this year, we want 10% more. Right? <laughs> um, so so in, in that case, for example, one of a kind of basic principle, which is hard to instill, is to begin to actually frame a broader conversation. Mm-hmm. So rather than in the public sector thinking about uh, you know ministry or department-based funding, is to take a total budgeting approach. So let's look at all the ministries of all the departments that serve the city and every financing decision you make, you need to take a total budgeting approach. So, because this is what will usually happen. Uh, We will have uh, in the public sector an objective to save 5% in public spending for whatever Mm -hmm. reason, okay? So then this mandate is given to each department um, and each one acts on it separately. So then the Department of Education will say, hmm, how do we cut 5% from our budget? <laughs> and so they will do the best job they can. Everybody very focused and, and passionate about public sector, trying to do the best they're doing. So people, broadly speaking, aren't evil. Or mm-hmm. what, we need to start with the idea that they're well-intentioned. And they will find. But they are unaware of the unintended consequences of that 5% on the broader city. So then five years later, we wonder why there are more young people with mental health problems. Yeah. So if we were to weigh decisions and say, no, it's ridiculous to say 5% cuts across the public sector. Mm-hmm. Let's do 5% in total sum. But that might actually mean we need to double the Department of Education's uh, you know, resourcing and have the resourcing somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Because that actually allows you a more effective use and a more sustainable use of public financing. To push this to a bit of an extreme, but this is the link. The conversation in the U.S. around defunding the police is, in a way, trying to get at that nexus. Mm -hmm. There's so much police funding because there's so many social issues that actually should be better resolved by moving those resources to other departments other than the police, then we have less policing needs, right? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I wonder, like, in governance, where does it innovation comes from? Does it come from outside or does it come from within? Uh, very, <laughs> very, very good. I, I think generally it comes from two perspectives, or mm-hmm. can, let's say three perspectives, which are the ones you would naturally expect. It can come from citizens, right? Yeah. There's such a pressure. And I think COVID has created some of that. Um, you know, the Black Lives Movement in the U.S. is creating at least pressure for some mm-hmm. of that. And hence, I'm just trying to make the connection back to my yeah. defund the police conversation. <laughs> so citizenry can certainly. And we've seen, you know, basically all uh, much of social change across history as being driven by, by, by in a way, the, the pressure of uh, the public. Uh, 
It can come from politicians because there's a deep-seated vision that to serve mm-hmm. this public will better, we need some fundamental change. And it can come from uh, civil servants. Now, I, I think um, they will have different dynamics at play. So generally, okay. if it's in the civil service, it's because there's a recognition that the organization is, is there's a lot of um, uh, stagnation, uh, people are unhappy with the job. It's becoming harder and harder to recruit civil servants. So then frequently there's pressure to improve the quality of work mm-hmm. uh, so that it's easier to sort of govern. So it's more of a kind of stability, actually, idea. So you want to bring innovation in to make things better as an organization. Oh, and I think a politician may be more driven by an ideological vision, uh, right? That actually we need to, you know, go towards a green Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, that, and that kind of stuff. So it can come from many, many uh, directions. Um, how do you start these kinds of initiatives and so on is a whole other ball game. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it because it's too complex <laughs> and too chaotic? Um, well, you know, part of the chaos, and I think we could d- d- define chaos in many different uh-huh. ways, but part of the chaos is there. there is too much complexity at play mm-hmm. uh, for our current logic to absorb. And by okay. logic, I mean the way that we've organized how we listen and act mm-hmm. on the world. Ah, interesting. So I don't think there is like an, a, a kind of, you know, absolute uh, metric for saying something is like independently chaotic. Chaotic is a perception that, that emerges because of this mismatch, uh, you know, between things. So part of, I think, a big ingredient in this chaos in innovation in the public sector is the fact that no one has time. <laughs> Everybody wants quick results. And, and yet this innovation agenda is at the end of the day, not about a new service. It's about fundamentally changing the logic of these institutions. So to get the political and administrative aha about that, let alone how to do it, requires a huge investment of time, a concerted effort to really understand how deep we need to go to make this change and what are the viable strategies. And people are just too preoccupied with maintaining the day-to-day, keeping the schools running, right? And actually with COVID and potentially next year we'll see, but I think some pretty dramatic cuts in public spending across cities, across the world, people will be even more busy maintaining the little world that we have left. Mm -hmm. They will have even less time uh, doing the hard job, the real job that we need to do for future generations, which is to really redesign our institutions. Um, And that creates chaos. Because there's the recognition that we need to behave differently, and yet our attention is elsewhere. It's like, Mm -hmm. you need to stop doing this, and yet the people you're trying to engage in are watching TV, they're on their phones, you know, and, and that's the chaos. That's so interesting because that leads me to one question that I really wanted to ask you, which was, it's, it's related to uh, COVID. And it's, uh, you've, you talked a little bit about that right now, but what, what ripple effects do you foresee for COVID in the next like 10 years, for example? Because this, for example, the housing crisis took 10 years and it's probably still, there's still uh, ripple effects from that. But this is a big needle event. So there's a lot of moving parts that are just coming up, but nobody's looking at them. But I, I yeah. wonder from your perspective, what do you see? I, I see a much more, you know, I think what we saw in 2008 with the subprime mm-hmm. sort of crisis, and the economic crisis that came out of that, uh, you know, was quite devastating. Mm-hmm. And, and clearly some countries... Uh, you know, it was a shock that some countries uh, absorbed better than others. Um, Greece, certainly in Europe, you know, had the worst end of the stick um, yeah. on this, for example. And I think this uh, is, uh, as, as a complete non-economist, so as a dilettante right now I'm speaking, I think is actually more fundamental mm-hmm. uh, because it's far more reaching it it goes into all corners of our logic of system uh, governance systems. Um, and it's ultimately not about COVID. Um, it's ultimately about a model that has created increasing inequality 
and has increasingly underserved a growing uh, population of, of people. So there are dynamics at play that you know are very broad ranging. Um, and I think the whole populist movement that kind of emerged, I would say, or got accelerated by the mm-hmm. 2008 outcome it, it is now part of that context, which makes it even sort of more chaotic. But if we look at some of the facts, uh, we know that the economic impact on on just cities across mm-hmm. the world is going to be devastating. I use this example all the time, but uh, the city of Helsinki uh, had a budget deficit, right? a gap in their budget of half a billion euros uh, after four months of COVID in the spring. Now we have a second wave, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I'm not a financial, you know, expert, but I would say, well, if second wave is probably another half billion, let's just mm-hmm. say, right? Because So then we'll have in this financial year, 1 billion euro budget deficit. That's about, I think, 24% of their budget. So let's just round it up. A quarter of the budget of the city of Helsinki, foof. So how are you going to fill it up? Yeah. Helsinki is in a very good position because they have uh, extra resources and they have flexibility. They will find a way to plug it. Mm-hmm. But every other city in Helsinki, in Finland, for the most part, doesn't have that. So they're going to have big scissors and they're going to cut a quarter of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, and especially those cities that are already struggling with these questions of inequality are going to be even worse way. So it's going to create a kind of spiral in my napkin sketch. And this is just to kind of provoke uh, anybody is to say that we're going to see uh, budget deficits across cities right across the world Mm -hmm. of 25 to 50%. And I would say that that is unprecedented. Right. The city of Helsinki is the biggest employer in Finland. Mm-hmm. Right? So when we understand cities as also employers, not just providers of services, we begin to understand the real impact um, of this. Now, the key is going to be whether cities and the public uh, systems of governance can take this moment of radical cuts that is coming, not as an opportunity to deliver a smaller yesterday. Mm-hmm but a completely new tomorrow. So if you have less money, what you can do is just reduce everything or you can say, okay, let's forget how things are done. What, what's the best use of this resource? Mm-hmm. Um, and that means fundamentally redesigning many aspects of how uh, these, these institutions work. And the second thing is, which has been a very positive thing, is that COVID has created a movement a social movement, I would say, uh, and the realization that uh, every single individual's behavior actually matters. And that's, in a way, part of this debate about uh, masks, no masks. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's the first time in history, because we've been having this debate for a very long time. Oh, you know, why should I recycle? It's just one person. It's not going to change anything. But now for the first time, not everybody, but many people are having this experience that their individual behavioral choices actually has a huge social and economic impact. Now, that's an incredible asset now. So if you think of not, okay, just reduce money, but increased social awareness about mm-hmm. mobilizing and its connection, then you say, well, you got an interesting set of assets. So how do we bring those assets to play? Mm-hmm. But that, that requires a lot of bandwidth, right? Definitely. And it's easier just to try to do with less than mm-hmm. rethink or redesign. I love, I love how you ended it in a, a positive note and how, and I, I think everyone is feeling that, that we are more aware of what's going on around each one of us and how connected we are with the world. And I wonder, like, um, from what I've been seeing and I'm curious to understand like your perspective on uh, what what is the bigger the biggest barrier to innovation in governance or in the, the projects that we want to create or even like this idea of of, of masks which is an innovation yep. for us. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So uh, uh, I'll give you three very quick ones. Okay. But on the mask thing, I just want to say the other I think amazing thing which we should think in a positive way as a as a global asset is that for the very first time perhaps in history we have had a globally shared experience. Mm-hmm. Everybody across the world is connected to COVID and understands and is connected to the issues. That's pretty amazing. How could we Plus use that 
for positive change. All right. So, so the 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 three uh, sort of barriers to innovation. Uh, one is innovation. The term innovation. <laughs> so let, let's just stop using it because whenever okay. I go into an institution and I, I talk about innovation, or we have to have an innovation department or a team or innovative people. Because <laughs> you're suggesting that 99% of the people are idiots. Right? Okay. Or that there is no capacity to do things. So mm -hmm. I think we need to uh, kind of uh, decouple this idea of, of change and, and, and sort of capacities. Mm -hmm. For the most part, people have great capacities. They're, they're not being mobilized in the right ways to make use of those capacities. Okay. Interesting. When we use the word design, uh, uh, sorry, design. <laughs> The same thing. Innovation. Uh, yeah, innovation. Yeah, that too. You know, it, it begins to identify a click, mm -hmm. whether it's an ideological click or click of people. And I, I don't think it's just productive. So that's number one. The second, wherever there is, whether it's articulated as innovation um, or not, when we're doing new things, is to make sure that they're resourced appropriately. That means that the right skills um, uh, and the right financial resource and the right mandate to do things, doing the right hard things. Mm -hmm. and too frequently, innovation is doing the nice little cute things that are on the periphery. And I think that is deadly because what it actually allows for institutions to do, let's say institutions will then do a nifty little bus stop or a nice little app. Right? <laughs> and people are like, oh, wow, they're being really innovative that there's less public pressure on the institution to fundamentally change, right? So by doing these nice little things on the margin, they actually entrench the old way of working even more. Now, some people would say, oh, no, no, but that's how you start this change process. I'm very skeptical of that because mm -hmm. that change process is going to have to deal with a lot of, lot of noise and will eventually sort of, uh, sort of die. So I said I would say three, but I ended up saying two. So maybe we'll just <laughs> stop there. All right. That just reminds me of a perspective I read somewhere um, where uh, we see the, the so-called innovation all around us, like with phones and uh, apps and ideas and all of that. But then when we look around, we our buildings are still the same. Um, the underground stations are still the same, at least in, in older Europe. Um, and we have this kind of uh, dystopia that we see uh, the future in, in the palm of our hand, but then we forget about the surroundings. And I wonder, like, are governments thinking about this way of, of, of changing things? Are they actually changing the, the really important things, with, which probably is infrastructure yeah. more than anything? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think in a way, we all need to do some honest accounting on that. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, issues have different clock speeds to them. So the phone clock speed is like, right? Super fast. But, but our city's sewage infrastructure is like, <laughs> you know, it's like clearly much slower than that. So um, the phone is very visible and it's very consumer friendly. Mm -hmm. Sewage infrastructure is a bit gross it's kind of invisible. Actually, we built it to be invisible and not a very hot topic amongst average citizens. Oh, nice. Average citizens, especially in the kind of hipster innovation circles, mm -hmm. uh, you know, oh, you know, a, a social movement to build a park or a cafe. Great. But, you know, where's the social movement to like rethink uh, our sewage infrastructure and get to the really technical and somewhat mundane and disgusting aspects of that, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so sometimes it's easier to do the things that have more stickiness to them from a social perspective than these others. So I do think there's a responsibility that we all share in, in educating ourselves and becoming uh, informed about the things that are boring and slow but maybe more central and and uh, and sort of deep rooted and seated, mm -hmm. right? So going back to my analogy from where you start with the shiny object and then you realize there's a process, then the organization, where we could go even one half step further to mm -hmm. say, 
there is the boring bureaucracy in here. You know, I, I, my hat goes to Indy, who you started with, who yeah. I'm deeply a deep fan of and a fantastic, smart human being. <laughs> and Indy would speak a lot about, actually, we need to change the boring bureaucracy mm-hmm. that governs the logic of how our organizations are structured and behave, right? Definitely. But most people don't want to go there. It's too boring, mm-hmm. too technical. So it calls it the boring revolution, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> boring, like, slow revolution. Yeah, I'd like to um, talk a little bit about one. It's it's just to end our conversation. There's one graphic that I use uh, many times, which is it's a, it's a kind of funnel uh, that goes from problems to solutions. Yeah. And uh, there's a the wide angle is on the on the problem. And then the the tiny tiny one is in solutions, and um, that that visualization makes me think a lot about uh, the work that I've been doing uh, for for a while. And people seem to center their focus most of the times in the tiny tiny end, which is the solution. So you go to a meeting with someone, and they have already a solution. They just want you to to come up with with the with the actual product or the actual service or whatever. Why why don't we spend more time in problems? What what is like the fundamental problem here that doesn't allow people to or why don't people want to think about that big problem? Because it's uncomfortable, right? <laughs> yeah. It gets us out of our specific domain of experience and knowledge. Mm-hmm. We are all limited by our past experiences. And so if we have to consider experiences that we can't even relate to. That's a pretty, you know, you, you need to have people who are quite comfortable with that. And that's not sort of everybody. And, and plus, we have incentives in place. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to buy your services for your expertise oh, to yeah. do this thing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and in fact, I, I come across this all the time in public governance. Why are we wasting so much time, like, talking about the problem? There's six solutions we need to work on right now. Mm-hmm. But again, those could be all swimming pools. And we, you know, we should actually, we haven't identified the bus schedule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and to do that, as I said, I think you need people with different perspectives. That's the way you, in which you work with questions that are very ambiguous and chaotic. Is you begin to, in a way, bring all the dynamics together to begin to understand what could you do in this context rather mm-hmm. than, you know, let's study it and let's hope that this chaotic situation will tell us what to do. Uh, it's a kind of like flipping of it. But we're not organized to work in teams. People mm. love to talk about, you know, but people hate working in teams. Mm. Uh, our, our professions, you know, are always fighting against each other's <laughs> departments are fighting against each other's, right? So, so we need to work against this kind of uh, bias to a new kind of bias, which is how do we bring differences together? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a more painful process, right? Definitely. One last question, Marco. Um, I'm curious to understand uh, which kind of projects or ideas are making you more uh, excited in the world. Like, what positive change are you seeing that makes you extremely interesting uh, to know more? And also, I've seen that most of the work in uh, uh, e-governance happened um, five years ago. People started five years ago, like. Uh, the UK government, the Finnish government. Um, what, what, what are the results of those pro- of the, of those um, projects? And what what are people focusing now? Those people that focus on the other governance, what are they focusing now? Yeah, yeah. So, in in terms of what is just cap- capturing my attention right now, mm-hmm. I'm I'm sort of deeply interested and committed to. Uh, responding to the need for institutional innovation. You know, so it's not like product innovation, it's not mm-hmm. service innovation, it's not a technological innovation, but institutional innovation. So that's kind of my focus. Within that context, I found this whole COVID moment very interesting because it's made the problems that we've known for a very long time just more self-evident. Mm-hmm. Um, and hence, I think there is this kind of opportunity to begin to address uh, some of those things. So here in Helsinki, I've been just very interested just to be hyper-specific now for once mm-hmm. um, in uh, this question of growing inequality. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen with COVID is that uh, there are two Helsinkis that are 10 minutes away by public transport. 
There is the downtown Helsinki where people are mostly uh, not of immigrant background, about 0%. Yeah. And then 10 minutes sort of out of city center, you have 40% people with immigrant backgrounds. And it turns out that you have hot pockets of unemployment and no unemployment, very little employment downtown. Mm-hmm. And if you live in these outside areas, you have eight times greater chance of getting COVID. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're seeing in, in, in Finland, which is a country that like values egalitarianism and you know inclusive society, a very fastly growing gap. And I am, uh, I think it's a huge opportunity for us to say, yeah, egalitarian society, but for whom? Mm-hmm. And we haven't had that conversation. I think in Finland, we lag the kind of multicultural conversation that Europe has had by probably two decades. And so I think there is an opportunity now to intervene, to bring new voices to the table, to design for a more heterogeneous sort of society. Mm-hmm. And avoid a lot of these things that we can see that come out of these kinds of issues if they go unintended. And people love to say, oh, well, the US is like crazy, right? That's not mm-hmm. us. You know, it's not Portugal, it's not Finland. Yeah. And I say, no, no, actually, the US is just us on steroids, mm-hmm. right? So if we don't deal with these issues now, we might be in that position in 20 years. So Let's invest now and do it. So I'm very interested in working in the urban fabric with some of these social issues and and public finance to try to think about how do we rebring together with a very different idea of what Nordic egalitarianism means in the 21st century. That's great. Um, On the E thing, just a very quick note. Um, I know there are some people who've done fantastic work, uh, people I admire very much who used to be in, for example, the UK government. Mm -hmm. Government Digital Services, right? Yeah. Started really as a kind of team-based entrepreneurial agent within the yeah. cabinet office and created amazing change. And I think with a lot of these teams that are built to create change in, in organizations and institutions, uh, the unfortunate outcome, uh, and this is just my interpretation, mm-hmm. is that they get qu- uh, very easily pushed out. They become too uncomfortable for the institution. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, GDS continues, but I don't think it's the exact same GDS that started. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's just a natural evolutionary sort of phase. So I think the, the last point I would like to make is that the success for governments is how do you continuously recharge the, the, the system, right? So Blair's first year was quite successful because he brought a lot of young, fresh people into government and it was mm-hmm. quite good at doing that. Second Blair, not so successful because he had the same people in place. Yeah. So how do you build that refreshing that happens from time to time uh, at a kind of almost like institutionalize it by default? And maintain it, right? So you bring it, it in exactly. and then maintain it. Exactly. And that's hard to, in a way, cut something, uh, make it obsolete uh, by, by just fact, by system. Mm-hmm. And actually, on a lot of the E stuff, we were realizing that a lot of the success is making systems obsolete uh, yeah. because it forces you to renew. Yeah. yeah. And wh- where are like these people focusing now? Are they like um, actually some of them have their own practices, so continuing okay. that e-governance and mm-hmm. digital stuff, but from a practice perspective. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Marco. Thank you very much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be uh, with you. Thank you.